This evening we have a subject which is probably one of the most difficult in the entire field of our interest. It has been said that the history of the study of consciousness is the history of religion, philosophy, and science. But these fields all depend finally on the gradual unfoldment of concepts concerning the power to know, the means by which knowledge is attained, and all the other ramifications by which reason and judgment can be derived from experiences of awareness. Some of the uh, early modern philosophers were of the opinion that the term consciousness should be dropped entirely as having developed gradually around itself such a frustration of meanings that it was no longer possible to use the term or the word intelligibly. Today it means almost anything that the individual wants it to mean. He applies it to every type of cognition, and he also involves it in nearly all of his spiritual and religious beliefs and ideas, with the result that semantically the word lost boundaries, and since the 19th century has been in comparative chaos as to internal structure. I don't agree, however, that we can afford to drop it as a word or seek for a substitute. Rather, I think we must clarify, in so much as we can, the essential meaning of our term and try to rescue it from the involvements into which it has fallen. As might be naturally supposed, our first difficulty is to define the term consciousness. Trying to discover what it actually means. What do we discover? What do we actually find? Apparently the term consciousness is most generally used to cover the field which we term awareness. It is a power or a faculty by which we are aware. By awareness we mean awakeness. We mean that these faculties are in a position or in a condition to accept the stimuli that may come to them from a variety of sources, external or internal. Awareness, therefore, is the state of being in the presence of a recognized phenomenon of some kind. We are aware of things around us. And this brings us to the first question that has been asked. Is man aware of the fact that he is aware? Up to a very recent time, there is reason to doubt that. Awareness was an acceptance. The individual turned his attention from one thing to another 
and accepted into his nature the testimonies of his senses, things seen, heard, touched, flowed into him, but he was not aware of himself in relationship to these things. He was not aware, for example, that his own consciousness accepted or rejected these phenomena by intent or purpose. It was merely a something forever available to become aware of whatever stimuli uh, was brought within its range. <clears throat> Gradually, however, the investigation of phenomena has led to the conclusion that whether we are aware of our own awareness or not, that there is a certain continuous activity from within ourselves, even in the most simple problem of seeing. Seeing is not merely the sense of sight registering its own testimony upon something within man. Seeing involves a motion from within man, a motion of experience, a motion of inevitable and intuitive recognitions. The individual seeing, whether he is aware of it or not, immediately begins to estimate the thing seen. A power within himself begins to pass judgment upon the thing seen. And this judgment is nearly always based upon experience, based upon memory, or upon previous instances in which similar things have been seen, or upon comparison, or perhaps upon the intuitive sense of utilities involved. Whether we know it or not, we always see with a certain appraising power. We are constantly passing some kind of judgment about the things seen, accepting it, rejecting it, liking it, disliking it, responding to it pleasurably or without pleasure, actively or passively. Thus, there is something within the individual that responds to the pressure of sensory perception and causes awareness to be immediately specialized into a series of judgments, conclusions, attitudes, and opinions. Yet this process occurring almost uh, too rapidly for us to estimate it, still does not cause the individual to experience the fact of his own participation in awareness. Most persons, being aware of something, are not aware of their own faculty procedure. They merely accept things seen, assuming that this is a natural and normal procedure. It is only after the rise of man's philosophic life when he began to question the methodology of things that happened to him that he began to get frustrated over the problem of his own awareness. Prior to this time, he simply was glad that he had this awareness. 
Gradually, however, the problem of trying to understand it intrigued his mind, intrigued his reason. Now, why should man wish to know how and why he is aware? Probably the answer lies in the gradual arising in human nature of certain doubts. From early time, man became aware of the fallibility of his own judgments. He realized that he could be mistaken, that due to the pressure of some psychic factor within himself, he could not depend upon the validity of his own sensory perception. He learned that he had a power by which he could pervert things seen or things heard, whereby he could interpret into something that which was not in it, or interpret out of it something that was in it. Therefore, that this process of awareness was not necessarily valid. When he began to experience this, he began to experience the need to rationalize this awareness process, to discover, if possible, where his own mistakes were. He began to realize also that he could not depend upon the sensory perception for final judgment in important problems. He could believe, as the ancients did, that the sun moved around the earth because it appeared to do so, and that when it set in the evening it went under the earth to light the world of the dead. He had a good deal of phenomenal evidence to sustain him, but he learned gradually that his senses were wrong, that what he appeared to see was not the truth. He learned in many ways that appearances could be deceptive. And by degrees, he lost faith in the absolute validity of the initial impact of awareness. <coughs> he became aware, for example, that people who looked nice and were well-dressed could still cheat him. He discovered that individuals who looked very healthy could drop dead five minutes later. He discovered that what appeared to be a great bargain was wonderful only on the surface, and that appearances could prove very deceiving. He began to become suspicious of surfaces and of appearances, and sought stronger and more positive instruments by which he could judge value. The moment he began to search for the judgment about value, he discovered he had to use certain internal faculties that he had to weigh and ponder and consider. And he gradually divided his mental life into two parts, a concrete or objective mental life dealing principally with phenomena, and an abstract or subjective mental life that dealt almost totally with principles. Now, principles by themselves were difficult to deal with. A man has never succeeded in dealing with a pure principle. He has never been able to separate a value completely from association with objectivity. If you wish to, for example, 
try to estimate in your own inner awareness the nature of a completely honest person. Now, you're out after a quality. You're out after the quality of honesty. You want to construct for your own purpose an archetypal image of total honesty. It is utterly impossible for you to do so without some recourse to objective symbolism. Man primitive in his thinking first decided that his way to discover the honest man was to find one somewhere in the world around him and then use this person as a pattern for all other honesty. We have done the same thing in religion. We have taken the one good man and made him the archetype of an ideal humanity. We have taken one virtuous person and called his way of life virtue. We have taken him gradually out of it, but we have never lost sight of the example which he gave, which becomes the standard for the estimation of an abstract value. Thus, our search for honesty had to center in the honest man. Our search for truth had to be uh, centered in a person who seemingly possessed this power or this invaluable treasure to a pronounced and outstanding degree. Truth without a truthful person or a truthful situation became comparatively unthinkable. So we were never able to completely get away from our dependency upon the records that our awareness had brought to us. Today, when we think of good as a virtue or as a quality, we must associate it with good persons, good conditions. We say that something fortunate that occurs to us is good. We must tie it with some phenomenal thing. Thus, as psychology has pointed out, we are not yet in a position to say that what we call consciousness is an arbitrary something within us which judges all other things. We are not able to say that consciousness is something in us forever judging righteous judgment. We would like to say that it is, but we are not able to prove this, either in our own living or by recourse to the compound example of life around us. We must, in absolute uh, honesty, therefore, say that consciousness as awareness is an awareness capable of error. An awareness which merely is awareness, but is not able to pass final judgment upon the qualities of which it is aware. Now this brings us to what you might almost call your Scottish metaphysical position on this, namely that consciousness per se and substantially represents the divine in man. That consciousness is a God-given attribute, inscrutable because it is divine. 
beyond definition because it is a spiritual thing, utterly transcending any of our objective or material experiences. Now this uh, causes also a moment of pause because we know that we are now in the presence of a serious dilemma. If consciousness is inevitably divine, then we must explain the margin of error which we find in it, because we are not able to assume that there is a margin of error in the consciousness of God. Consequently, if consciousness is inaccurate, if man can come to certain conscious conclusions which are not true, then consciousness cannot be totally and completely divine. Because if it is, we associate it inevitably with the element of the infallible. And every aspect of consciousness that man knows today is fallible. We know, for example, that the noblest aspects of consciousness as we know them will be subject to modification in the future. And things which today we disregard or upon which we pass adverse judgment may sometimes be accepted as superior to what we have now, or what we now accept. Thus consciousness cannot be more or nor less than a conditioned kind of awareness. Now what religion is really trying to tell us is that we actually have no definition or no true and complete explanation for this fact that we are aware. Once we become aware, we can assume that our awareness is subject to error imposed upon it by mind and sense. Thus the awareness of man recording any phenomenon may be subject to error due to false or inaccurate recording. The sensory perception was not correct or not complete in its testimony. This can and does still leave the root of awareness as an energy or as a power, a kind of spiritual electricity, a kind of life essence by which awareness is possible. Religion might well affirm that this life essence prior to its entanglement in judgment, or prior to its extension in awareness, may be regarded as a sacred or divine element or agent in the compound of man. Science today, striving to work this problem out, has had a number of hypotheses with which it has toyed at least uh, for a time. One of these concepts is that actually consciousness is a byproduct of body. That in some way consciousness arises within body. That it is due to the chemistry of the kind of creature that we are. And that no other kind of creature could have our kind of consciousness. Now if this is true, however, and consciousness arises 
from a complete chemistry of the body, then it would naturally follow that any major change in the body would alter consciousness, and this is not true. Therefore, we are forced to pause in this thought. In the war, the late World War, there were men who lost both arms and both legs. The total amount of the body actually lost being nearly 50%. Yet there is no evidence that their consciousness changed in any way. It did not mean that they recognized any major change in themselves as centers of awareness. They were naturally handicapped and perhaps mentally and emotionally most disturbed. But actually, they did not change basic consciousness. Also, it has been noted that consciousness is removed from any area of the body that is separated from the circulation of the central nervous system. Therefore, that in some mysterious way, Consciousness moves in and through the body by means of the central nervous system. Therefore, if consciousness be regarded as an attribute of body, then the chemistry or alchemy must take place within the central nervous system so that the bodily contribution pass through certain changes and refinements or reorganizations in these areas before they can be regarded as the ground of a conscious reaction. In the last ten years, the problem has changed its complexion again. We have less emphasis upon consciousness as byproduct of biological function. We are again beginning to think of consciousness as something imposed upon body, something separate from and superior to body, either arising in a psychic field, which is an overtone of body, or else in a soul sphere, which is an undertone of spirit, and is itself superior to body. All these theories and problems and postulations have their strong advocates. But an advocate does not necessarily possess the full answer. So this evening and through the rest of this series of lectures, we are going to try to summarize and explore the field of consciousness as it is understood in both Eastern and Western religion and philosophy, and as far as we can in the terms of psychology and in comparative standards which have arisen over the last several thousands of years of human intellectual contemplation. We can then begin with one of the most basic concepts that we have, and that is consciousness as a subject of its own object. Consciousness was, to most ancient people, regarded as subject, therefore identified with self or identified with I. Consequently, in seeking for early definitions of consciousness, it was customary to associate this power with the existence of a selfness or even a selfhood within the composition of man. 
Consciousness then became the primary attribute of self. I am, being perhaps one of the simplest, the most ultimate statements of consciousness. And this statement, which has gone unchallenged for the most part through the ages, because no one has sensed or felt the audacity to say, I am not. It sounds very defeating, frustrating, and difficult to demonstrate. Because the very statement of the individual that he is not implies that there is something that is in the position to make the statement, which it immediately nullifies, because the statement cannot emerge from that which is not. The man can deny, but in his very denial, he proves that which he seeks to deny, because he must use his own statement to deny his own existence. This becomes illogical, and primitive man, even at an early time, was not that foolish. He outgrew this uh, situation rather quickly. So he came to the conclusion that in some mysterious way, Consciousness was man's statement of his own existence. That the man knew that he existed. And the mere fact that he knew that he existed was the primary proof of consciousness. How he knew, what he knew, why he knew, these questions have never been answered. But that he knew became a self-apparent fact against which there seemed to be no possible attack. The individual attempting to demonstrate his own lack of self-existence found that it was impossible to make a demonstration without making use of the very elements which he sought to deny. So he was forced to give it up. We find in religious writings, therefore, quite frequently some simple statements such as I am. And uh, we find this in the story of the visit of Moses to the court of Pharaoh in Egypt. Uh, when Moses and Aaron wanted to have the authority to appear, they wanted to know who had authorized them to go before Pharaoh. And God answered to them, Tell Pharaoh, I am, hath sent thee. I am. Being primarily, therefore, a statement of divinity. This I amness allowed man to remain for a very long time simply basking in the fact of his own existence. The fact that he existed, however, rapidly led him into complications. As this sense of I amness began to develop, man could not sense his own selfness except by the creation of a dynamic comparison. I am implies also the inevitable existence of that which is not I. I am makes a little wall around something which we call ourselves, and gives to this which is within the wall a peculiarity different from that which is outside of the wall. 
Therefore, the individual can turn toward himself and he can say, I am. He can turn away from himself and observe anything else in the universe and say, this is not I. So man developed a universe in which all things ultimately resolve themselves into two groups, I and not I. I was a very small group, consisting of one unit only. The not I was everything else that existed. Therefore, we may say that the not I was in an overwhelming preponderance. Also, this recognition of the I and the not I led to a further complication. Namely, that man could not and did not live by I alone. If the individual could have lived totally from within I, being an entirely self-sustaining creature, if he could have fed himself from within himself, clothed himself, if he could have reproduced his kind alone and without a reaction from any other creature, if he could have created his own empire for one being and one being only, and have lived without any dependence whatever upon nature around him, he might have gone on in blissful indifference to the not-I forever. But he could not do this, and he came upon another dilemma, namely, that in his experience, nearly everything that he wanted, everything that he needed, Everything necessary to his survival belonged in the world of not I. He had to go out and cut out a tree when he wanted uh, some wood. The tree was not I. He went fishing and he caught a fish which was not I. He then ate the fish and then some one thing happened and the fish became a vital factor in the perpetuation of the I. The bones, however, he threw away. They were still not I. He had a family. He was very fond of his family in a primitive manner, whatever that might be. But that family was not I. And he gradually discovered also that the most difficult and terrible interval that exists in nature is the interval between two creatures with the same kind of eye. He didn't have nearly as much trouble understanding animals because he thought of them the way he wanted to, and if he was wrong, they could never correct him, so he thought he got along very well. But the moment he tried to explain another I, another self, he found himself in conflict with a being like himself, with purposes and principles which might not agree with his own. So man struggling against this not I, discovered that himself as subject was under the almost continuous tyranny of his not-self or the world around him as object. And we find this arising not more distantly than in our evening paper tonight. For we discover in reading the paper that there are many things happening in the world that we do not like. If we had anything about us to say about it, they wouldn't happen according to our way of thinking. We feel, however, that these things are being caused by not I, 
by somebody else. And that as sure as we are here, we must suffer from the happening and the doing of some other eye that is not ourselves. Thus we have gradually grown to the position where we are all the victims of the collective objective, the thing outside of ourselves, and remain as passive observers, having a continuous awareness that things around us are going contrary to our inclinations and that there is nothing we can do about it. This is a, a rather confusing and uh, crippling type of recognition. Man had it for a long time, however, and this is not new with us, though it is new every time it happens. We have then man as self, looking around him into a world in which most of the values are very difficult for him to understand, and most of these difficulties arise from the action of other selves than his own. He may abstractly conceive of the fact that for everyone else, he is also one of those other selves, and that therefore the universe is composed of an infinite number of selves, each one unique to the one who it belongs to, each one almost impossible of comprehension by anything except itself. This curious psychological situation has always been a cause of difficulty, and probably always will be, as long as it continues, because it places the human being in a strange relationship, a fatalistic, frustrating relationship with everything else that exists. Consciousness begins to tell us these things as we use it in terms of awareness. We therefore come to the conclusion that consciousness is in some way a rather individual thing. That consciousness has to be the sum or substance of something. So we then go to the next step, namely the possibility that behind each of the forms in nature, there is a separate conscious entity. The moment we do this, we come into religion. For now we find the body to be possessed by a spirit, or occupied by a conscious being that has an existence of its own apart from body, but is brought into a relationship with body during the phenomenon which we call physical living. We now have, then, conscious beings who have dispositions, characteristics, and attitudes which they impose upon body. Body, then, now becomes the victim of spirit or of the spiritual entity. The psychic being becomes the autocrat. Instead of body creating consciousness, body becomes merely the instrument for the expression of consciousness, whether this consciousness be good or bad, depending upon the nature of the being which inhabits the body. Now what do we have in, in support of this concept? We have one thing that seemingly is very powerful. And that is this ultra-individuality this ultra individuality of self. This apparent hopeless separateness of self. 
this situation that we see around us, that we are not understood by others, that the purposes sacred to us are meaningless to others, that basically we have great difficulty understanding and just as great difficulty being understood by any other being. Under such conditions, it seems that we can demonstrate that consciousness is a series of individual units, each one encased in some kind of form or body, and that these individual units are irreconcilable in themselves, having different origins and different destinies. This seems, uh, from a phenomenal standpoint, uh, reasonably conclusive, but it presents us with another rather abstract but important dilemma. And that is that we observe everywhere in nature that things in their ultimate states are not separate. We recognize, for example, that this solar system of ours is all to a great degree bound under the luminosity and energy of one sun. But this one sun, or one light, or one life, illumines all things, sustains them, nourishes them, and is present in their compound. If this be true, we see in the power of the sun one life, light, susceptible of infinite differentiation. We know that the energy from the sun not only moves the planets and causes the grass to grow and inspires the poet and the mystic, but also sustains the worm and the insect and makes the earth fertile, makes the very water that we drink suitable for our use. Thus this life, though infinitely separate in its manifestation, appears to us to be one essential substance. Man contemplating on this in the golden age of philosophy came to the conclusion that the life in man must be essentially one substance on the simple, empiric, logical premise that there cannot be more than one life because life is not a separate thing but a total and inclusive thing. There can be many living things, but life is the common denominator of all of them. Therefore, life is a universal, even though living may be a particular experience. Thus, the ancient, contemplating this, came to the conclusion that as life is able to support many things in no way resembling each other, and at the same time, certainly not resembling life itself, which is totally invisible in its own essence, so consciousness can be one thing, although it is manifested as many different things with apparently little similarity, and with the same attribute that life possesses, namely that in its substance it is invisible. Thus, consciousness is one kind of energy, itself never to be experienced totally apart from involvement of some kind in a conditioning or modifying agent. 
that it is conceivable that my life might ultimately be experienced apart from form, this cannot be denied. But such experience is not yet available to us as the basis for the estimation of value. So philosophy advised us to contemplate that while consciousness, as it relates to our personal life, is a highly individual thing, that it is sustained by a common energy, which is the root and source of it, and that this is a universal thing, but that while man in particular may be conscious of many things, he has no facility and no power by means of which he can be conscious of conscious life in itself, apart from any modification or form which it may assume. Out of this type of thinking, perhaps, developed the theories of yoga and Vedanta. These theories being very largely based upon the recognition of a common universality of life. And therefore, that behind all individuality, all personality, all separateness, there has to be one common energy and that this common energy is actually a most uncommon energy, inasmuch as it is the pure energy of divinity itself. This, of course, led from a concept immediately to a precept, and Vedanta developed along the idea that having affirmed the existence of a transcendent universal energy, in this case a universal energy consciousness, uh, that it was the privilege, duty, and responsibility of the human being to so integrate or organize his own resources that he could become increasingly conscious of this universal agent. That he therefore made his own way of life uh, to achieve a universal experience of consciousness. Now, this universal experience of consciousness, the modern psychologist warns us, is not quite as simple as religion might make it seem to be. Because actually, how are we going to discover the validity of our own mood? Supposing the individual actually has what he regards as a genuine experience of cosmic consciousness. How does he know that it is cosmic consciousness? By what comparison or by what value within himself is he able to judge the merit of any extension of his own consciousness beyond his own experience? This becomes a very difficult question. We may have an experience which seems to us transcendent. How transcendent is it? We may feel that at any given moment that we have been elevated into a universality, have we? Or are we merely drawing upon our own symbolism and simply projecting a mental image of a state, a state which has become familiar to us through reading, through thought, through study, or through contact with some outstanding system of religion or ethics. 
I know, for example, that we all have studied uh, what you might term consciousness dreams. Dreams in which the individual appears to move into a superior state of consciousness from that of his daily living. He feels quite certain that he has entered into spheres of reality, transcending anything that he knows here. But has he actually entered them? Or has he merely visualized conditions that he has hoped would exist or could exist? Has he actually escaped the tyranny of his own mind? Or has he merely come under the more subtle influences of that tyranny, therefore a worse victim than before? This is hard to say without a very careful analysis of a particular incident under discussion. But it is a well-known fact that the individual can create a mirage, move into it, feel himself to have had extraordinary extension of consciousness when in reality he has only intensely visualized certain mental patterns which he has previously experienced and accepted. All this causes us to be to a measure careful in our estimation of what this consciousness experience can actually mean to us. We have to be very thoughtful, very wise, not allow ourselves to become too optimistic in our examination of these factors. The uh, fact still remains, then, that we are aware and that this awareness troubles us to the degree that we try to understand how we are aware, are aware and why. And perhaps uh, in going into this the situation as thoughtfully as we can, there is another approach that might be worthwhile. And that is the approach of the mystic. And the mystic seeking to discover consciousness tries to do so by suspending the function of everything that is not consciousness. He does not attempt to storm the gates of heaven. He does not attempt to push his own mind or his own convictions into the world of causes. He does not attempt to dictate to the universe as to how it exists or what it is like, nor to impose any concept of his own upon universals. He takes the attitude that if he imposes no concept, if he suspends all of his own personal attitude, that which remains will form a kind of door by means of which the impersonal at the root of himself may come through into manifestation. In other words, that if he can prevent illusion, prevent himself, from distorting his own mind, prevent himself from allowing the mind to dominate his spiritual convictions, that in this way, by suspending mind, he can come into the direct presence of consciousness itself. But the thing that blocks consciousness in man is mental activity. The ancients assumed, of course, that two things blocked it, mental activity and emotional activity that wherever the individual was under mental or emotional pressure, he would never be honest, he could never see anything as it truly is, 
and he could never be still and permit the internal to move through him. Thus the Quaker, the Quietist, the Sufi, all of these types of mystics uh, assume that consciousness could best be experienced or discovered through the total suspension of all function. And this was to a measure behind the meditative disciplines of Eastern religion, as well as the monastic disciplines of the Western Church. Out of this experience, however, came a series of consequences which also have to be estimated in terms of value. One thing we do know, namely that the suspension of the objective faculties of the individual certainly did have a particular and definite result. And that result was a distinct ennobling of his nature. The individual who was able to suspend his own selfishness, for example, exhibited a larger measure of unselfishness. The individual who was able to suspend worry found greater internal organization. Therefore, we can say that the person who is able to suspend negative processes in his own psychic life certainly gains a considerable amount of insight or releases a superior quality of insight as the result of escaping from or overcoming negative or lesser degrees of insight. Thus, in the uh, experience of the mystic, there seemed to be an increasing godliness, an increasing sensitivity to value as the individual slowly relinquished uh, those attitudes which were most likely to bind him to false concepts and standards. Here we have then perhaps the explanation throughout the whole world of what we might term the, the mendicant attitude in religion. Namely that man not being able to serve two masters, those seeking God must first renounce the world. This renouncing the world was only symbolic, however. It was the renouncing of the entanglement in which the sensory perceptions attaching themselves to objects became hopelessly involved in these objects and in the destinies of these objects to the degree that there was no longer any possibility of attaining, attaining a tranquility because of the non-tranquil nature of attachments. Attachments are always subject to improvement or to lack or loss of improved conditions. They go forward or backward. The individual either becomes more or less. And these attachments never seem to stand still. And the individual captured in the moods and constant motions of these attachments must also bear their commotion and the confusions which arise within them. So the mystic simply takes the attitude that if you can suspend worldliness, that which, that which you have left is God-consciousness. But the individual who has no consciousness of his own, by that very fact, becomes aware of universal consciousness. That universal consciousness and human consciousness have a common root, but that the one cannot be manifested, the universal, until the other, the personal, 
has been suspended. This again is the idea that man cannot serve two masters. Therefore, he cannot serve both the mind and the consciousness. He cannot serve the ego and God. And somewhere he must make the decision. And if he decides to serve truth, then he must gradually detach his awareness from all these pressures which cause illusion or have a tendency to result in the distortion of the testimonies of sensory perception. Uh, the story we have of Dante and his contemplation the city of Florence uh, follows in this thinking also. Namely, that the mystic, having impersonalized his faculties, is able to perceive all things in a more universal way. He is no longer concerned with friend or enemy. He is no longer concerned with wealth or poverty, youth or age, attachment or loss. And being free from these pressures, he seems to gain a kind of tranquility, a suspension of pressures. And this suspension of pressure has always been an essential part of the phenomenon of mysticism. But we then begin to say, what does this mean in terms of consciousness? It means a certain relaxation. It means that consciousness is no longer constantly moving. Awareness is no longer bombarding the center of itself with an endless stream of testimonies. Western man, confronted with this problem, takes the attitude that to suspend these faculties, to suspend the pressures of living, will mean to reduce the consciousness itself to a non-entity. What he is trying to tell us is that the consciousness has no existence apart from stress. That it exists primarily because it is challenged. And that consciousness is man's reaction to challenge. That it leads to the gradual strengthening of faculties and the intensification of energies, the development of the power of the will, and the gradual integration of resources against adversity. Therefore, that if we suspend the problems around man, we isolate him, and his consciousness simply goes to sleep because it is not challenged. That the consciousness, therefore, in man is something which rises primarily to challenge and has no existence apart from the need for itself which man experiences in daily living. This, however, is not quite rational either. It is subject, to a, is subject to a great deal of controversy and debate on a number of grounds. First, if consciousness is dependent upon phenomena, such as man's association with the immediate problems around him, and consciousness represents, as we have a tendency to believe that it represents, one of the highest existing forms of energy in space, then it leaves universal consciousness dependent upon universal action and causes God to be totally dependent upon his creation for his own existence. This opens another question. It opens the problem as to whether the divine nature in this respect is identical with human nature. 
Man is dependent for certain experience upon his environment. Is this also true of deity? Is deity aware of its own existence only because of the struggle of creatures like human beings who must in some way uh, find the solution to their mystery and in so finding it, do they contribute to the ultimate discovery of the mystery by deity itself? The ancients were disinclined to this viewpoint. They were more inclined to view uh, a middle attitude as one perhaps of greater accuracy. Admitting that consciousness is dependent in its manifestation upon phenomena. The ancient also affirmed that it has an existence and subsistence apart from phenomena. Therefore, that if the individual does nothing, in no way stirs mentation or emotion, suspends every faculty and observation and power that he possesses, that he does not in so doing uh, destroy consciousness or cause it to cease to exist or to cease to have a natural faculty of its own. The ancients were inclined to assume that consciousness has an existence in itself and that this, in, this existence in itself is perhaps the supreme mystery of all mysteries in the universe. 